you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. We continue our series of messages through the Revelation itself. Today's message is entitled, The Heart of the Revelation. The Heart of the Revelation. What comes to your mind when you hear the word heart? Is it that organ that pumps in your body that breathes life to you? Do you think of a watermelon and the heart of a watermelon? It's the sweetest thing. For some of you who like to play spades and rook, I know you wouldn't play anything else. It might be one suit of cards in your cards, the hearts. I suggest to you today, I submit today to you that that the heart is the center, it's the centermost, it's the innermost part of something. The last book of the Bible is called the the Revelation. It's the heart of the gospel. It it, It discloses, it uncovers Jesus. Everything points to him. And he is the heart. As I have studied and read, the four verses that we're going to read today, to me, Revelation is the thing that puts the final stamp on the gospel. How many here want to go to heaven? Okay, half of you. I'll try that again. (laughs) I should have asked, who wants to go someplace else, okay? Let's try that again. Who want, just say amen. You don't have to lift your hand. Who wants to go to heaven? Amen. And see, Jesus has given us a little picture of heaven here. It's the heart of the message. But now, to understand this message, understand that John, I've said this several times, John is on the island of Patmos. It's 95 A.D. Most of the people who have interacted with the Jesus on earth are dead at this time. John is probably in his late 80s or his early 90s, and he's still being persecuted for his faith. And the truth is, this message, this revelation, the entire book, was sent by God to us to encourage us that there is a heaven, there is a future, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a Jesus, there is a God, there is what he said there is. And this message comes to us To encourage us. And the reason that they needed encouragement at that time is in 95 A.D. John is on the Isle of Patmos with his own solitude, his own persecution. And all the Christians back on the mainland, all those who chose to follow Jesus back on the mainland, they're in their type of persecution. Many of them were losing their heads. Many were losing their lives. Many were losing their rights and their privileges and everything. The truth is this message comes to those who were being harmed. Now, in unpacking the text, I just want to unpack it in this way, that you see it as the heart of the message, the key for everything that we will study from here forward. If you found your copy of God's Word, well, I hope that's not the one we got up there because the Scripture's wrong. There we go. We're on verse 17. The Scripture was listed wrong. Would you stand to honor the reading of God's Holy Word? We're going to pick up... In verse 17. If you can, if you can't, it's okay. John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I remind you, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. I remind you, just last week, we read that text where he he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he turned to see the voice talking to him, and he saw the glorified Jesus, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that today that you would unveil yourself to us. And I pray that you would unveil ourselves to us. Show us that part of ourselves that we have... uh, kind of blocked out and hidden away. Show us that part of ourselves that you want to come and reclaim and redeem. We thank you for your love and grace and your mercy. We thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. Be with us in the moments that remain. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These four verses to me lay out the heart of the revelation. If you got your bulletin, you'll see the little outline there. I'm going to share it with you in three thoughts. And this first thought is one of the most powerful thoughts that I believe God's ever ever given to me. It's a very simple, it's a th- simple thought as far as outline goes. It's the message, the message of the revelation, the message of the revelation. The very reason that we're calling this the unveiling is because it's all about revealing, disclosing, and unveiling the glorified Jesus. We need a fresh view of Jesus. We need a fresh view. View, fresh glimpse, if you will, of Jesus in all of his majesty, splendor, glory, holiness, purity, and power. For you see, the truth is, we need to see him for who he is. We need to see him for how much he loves us. Hey, you know what else we need to see him for, young people? We need to see him for how much patience that he has with us. We need a fresh view of Jesus. I mean, I want you to think about it. We're reading about John. 
Everybody, you can shake your head or nod your head. I know you don't respond verbally very much. You remember that John knew Jesus personally. You knew that. I mean, he, he watched, he, he walked with Jesus. He saw what Jesus did. He knew Jesus personally. Well, now on the Isle of Patmos, he gets this fresh view of the glorified Jesus. And what does he do? It takes his breath away. He thought he knew Jesus, but when he got this fresh view of Jesus, he fell down like a dead There is something, there is something about the appearance of the glorified Jesus that causes mere human beings to realize our mortality, our frailty, our sinfulness, our wickedness, and even our unworthiness. If we really see Jesus, His presence are overwhelming. His presence is just overwhelming. You can go to the Mount of Transfiguration and you can see how the three disciples were on their face. They were overwhelmed. You can go to Isaiah 6 and see how Isaiah was overwhelmed when he saw the Lord. You can go back to Exodus and see how Moses, for crying out loud, was overwhelmed when he saw the Lord. We are no better than them. When I read, when I read verses 17 and 18, there are three short phrases, three two-word statements that we need to get our hands around today, the message of the revelation. Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says. You ready? I am. I am. Moses was the first one to hear this at the burning bush. When Moses said, well, who do I tell him? And he says, just tell him I am. I am. Now, we, we don't really get our heads around that, but I want you to remember something. The burning bush was a turning point in the life of Moses. <clears throat> I was thinking about this last night before I went to bed. For 40 years, Moses had been in the, in the uh, company of Pharaoh. Literally had everything money could buy. For the next 40 years of his life, he had nothing money could buy. It's at the end of those two dynamic changes that God brought him to a burning bush and said, take off your shoes because this is indeed holy ground. Many people, probably most people in this room, today need a burning bush experience where you come face to face with the I Am. When Jesus lived on earth, did you know that he said, I am a few things? I wasn't going to do this, and I thought it might do you better to visually see it. Watch the screen. 
He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way, truth, and life. I am the vine. And then here he says, I'm the first and the last. I am alive. Has anybody caught that yet? Jesus is alive. We don't come to a funeral every Sunday. We come to worship the Lord who is alive. He, this is the message to us. It's, it's, it's to us for salvation. It's to us that we're to take the message and give it to the world. If today you know Jesus, please listen. I will say this till my dying breath. I will say this as long as God gives me strength. But you're not supposed to be a stopper. You're not supposed to be a bottleneck. You're not supposed to be a, a kink in the chain. When the gospel came to you and Jesus saved you, it came to you on the way to somebody else. And when it stopped with us, we have stopped divine intervention in this world. The world needs to hear this truth. I am. Because the I am, he is everything you need. The I am is everything your friends need. The I am is everything your family needs. The I am is the answer. Society thought they had killed him. Society back then thought they had killed him. They put him in the grave. They even put seals on the grave. It's kind of like today. They think they silenced him. But his message is, ah, you know, that's what you think. But I am alive. But now he was dead. They did kill him and silence him. And that's the second. He says, I am. And then he says, I was. Have you ever thought about that? What was he? Well, he was dead for a second. I want to say that again. No, Brother Jerry, it was three days. There's a second. You know why? Because the Bible says, we like to tell this when we're talking about eternity, the Bible says that a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. Hello? The Bible says a thousand years is a day to the Lord. So if you take a thousand years and you divide it, he was dead for three days. He was dead for about a second. Hello? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but this is nothing to God at all. He was dead. He did allow his earthly life to be taken. He did allow himself to be placed in the grave. But he did that for you. He did that for me. He did that so that we could enjoy eternal life. He sacrificed himself. I was dead. That's what he says. I was dead. Put it in the past tense. But we need to get our hearts and minds around the I was. Because you know what I believe? I believe if we ever get our hearts and minds around the fact that he was dead and now he's alive. He was in the tomb, but now he's alive. He was locked away for three days, but now he's alive. If we ever get our minds around the fact that Jesus lives, it will revolutionize our lives. You go to every other major religion in the world, you can find their founder and their God in the tomb. <laughs> the, you can go to where Muhammad is buried. You can go to where Joe Smith is buried. You can go to where Confucius is buried. And you can find bodies there. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, all they can say was, He was here. He's gone now. 
I am. I was. I was dead, but now I am alive. You know what that means? This is his third statement right here. He says, because I hold the keys. I hold the keys because I was dead, because I am living now, because I am alive forevermore. Because I have defeated death, because I have defeated hell, I hold the keys to it all. Now, whether that's dawned on you or not, let me just simplify the message of Revelation. Are you ready? This is really complex. So I have to tell the teenagers, the adults won't get it. Here it is. Jesus is the answer. Is that too simple for anybody? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage to sin? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage to habits? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage to this world? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage to your friends for crying out loud? Jesus is the answer. Are you in bondage, listen, to your past? Jesus has already been there. He's the answer for whatever is going on and haunts you in your past. Jesus has the keys. He holds the keys to release you. He holds the keys to set you free. If you've ever been in bondage, you'd be glad when you get set free. Hello? I should ask, has anybody ever been in bondage before? And then nobody would raise their hand. Then I'd have to change my subject to preaching online. Because everybody in the room has been in bondage to something. Jesus has the keys, and he has the keys to set you free. And we know that John wrote, He whom the Son sets free is what? Free, free indeed. Yes. Free indeed. What an encouraging message. What a reason to get excited. What a reason to throw a party. Oh, Brother Jerry, you're a preacher. You're not supposed to talk about throwing parties. Let me tell you, they throw a party in heaven every time somebody gets saved. Hello? We just need to know the right stuff to get excited about. Jesus came to us when we were in our sin. He died for us. While we were in our sin, he rose from the grave to break the shackles and the chains of sin for us. And now he offers you and he offers me forgiveness from the sin that keeps us separated from God. And he gives us the opportunity to enter a right relationship with holy God. Now, you talk about good news. Some people think the good news is Tennessee won yesterday. Some people think, I'm going to get in trouble here. Some people think it's good news LSU won yesterday. I happen to live with somebody who, if you say amen, the preacher's wife, I mean, she threatened to kill the preacher this week. So we think all of those things are good news. Let me just tell you something. Those things are kind of like him being dead for a minute. In light of eternity, they don't measure up. The things that we should be excited about is that Jesus has set us free. The message of the revelation, the heart of the revelation. He holds it all. He holds the church. He holds your life. He holds my life. He holds the future. It's Jesus, the message of the revelation. 
But now we're going to get a little technical. I want you to see the makeup of the revelation. If it would have fit my alliteration, Brent, I'd have said the outline. There are every books in the Bible that outline themselves, but Revelation is one. We find the outline in verse 19. Now, once you get this set up, once you get this set up, remember I just told you as we started, John's on the Isle of Patmos, and the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice. He turned to see the voice, and it took his breath away what he saw. Jesus, who he had loved and followed for three years, Jesus, who he had seen transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration and drove him to his knees, he turned and he saw Jesus. It took his breath away and he fell before him as a dead man. The truth is, is that he's been amazed. He's been overwhelmed. He's been humbled. And, and Jesus speaks to him and said, now it's time to write. Now you can write. And he says, verse 19, therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. There's your outline of Revelation. Therefore, write. So what does he write? He begins writing with the past. The past. What was. What you have seen. I want you to think about it. Have you ever thought about it? Most people don't think about the Bible like this. When John is on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus has been gone for approximately 60 years. 60. Can you imagine if God had just told John, Brent, right. You think he had some stories to tell in those 60 years? thinking about all the, the uh, persecution, thinking about all the people being saved, thinking about Pentecost, thinking about now uh, Paul was dead. Most of the disciples were dead. He thinks about all those martyrs and people giving their lives, and, and every time they get ready to burn them at the stake, they go, you'll give your last word if you want to repent, if you want to recant and repent of what you're saying, and every one of them will go, well, I got one more word. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. They'd strike the match and kill them. He could have written about so many things. If you want to know in context of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 19 is the past. And instead of, I want you to hear this, instead of John telling all his stories, writing all his stories, you know what he did? He gives us a picture. He gave us a picture of God the Father, of God the Son, and even God the Spirit. Furthermore, he showed us. He showed us what would happen when we come face to face with Jesus. He writes about him being in the very presence of holy God. He writes about being filled with the Spirit. When I read the story, and I think about him literally fainting at the vision of Jesus... And then I could see that picture of Jesus stretching out his hand, probably those nail-scarred hands. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
I fear that many folks, the reason in the 21st century they really don't want God to do something new in their lives is because they're afraid of what it will mean to them and for them. Don't be afraid. And this is what he says. He says, I am. I was. And I hold everything. When you hear your Lord say that, it should give us confidence. It reminds us that Jesus is in the past. And he's controlling everything. He says, right, those things which have been, which was. And then he moves to the present, number two. And he says, now, next, write what is. Now, in the context of the Revelation, that picks up in verse 20 of chapter 1, and it runs to verses, verse 22 of chapter 3. You see, he is now outlining what the present-day church age will be, what the present-day church should be. He wrote seven letters to seven churches. He gives us a picture of the church age. Now, you may not like that. I read this morning on Facebook that somebody was mad at their mirror because it was telling them the truth. Have you ever been like that? Mad at your mirror because it's telling you the truth? Mirrors don't lie. You see, Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus is telling us in chapters 2 and 3 as we talk in the next weeks about the seven churches, he's telling us about just about every kind of church that's in existence today. But here's the deal. He's telling us the good, the bad, and the ugly. The first century church got a lot of things right. They, I mean, they didn't have Twitter and Facebook. Oh, goodness, the internet. How did they even? How did they even uh, function? They had nothing. They didn't have cell phones. But you know what they had? They had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They had the passion of Jesus. And even though they had nothing, they did a great deal with it. Oh, yes, they had issues. They had relationship issues. They had click issues. They had people that wanted this leader or that leader. And Paul finally said, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Jesus is who it's all about. We need to get that concept today. But here's what he's telling us for modern day. He's telling us that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of everything that we'll study in the next couple of weeks, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is still wanting the best for his church. He still wants the best for you. He still wants the best for me. He wants us involved in his mission, in his ministry, in his vision. He wants us involved in making a difference in the world by touching the lost, touching those who are separated from God. <clears throat> Lauren and I had a conversation just before the service about how our goal is, our shared goal. Possibly through the upper room ministry, it may not look like it did last year, is to get every one of us, let's just put you on call, to get every one of us to have their hands in ministry helping people 
meet practical needs so that we may share Jesus with them. Brother Jerry, what? where did you get that from? Well, I didn't think you'd ever ask, but just in case you're wondering, I got it right here. I got it right here. What we do here on Sunday is one thing. What we do out there is what Jesus has called us to do. I want to say that again. Thanks, Brent. I want to say that again. What we do here is one thing. What we do in the community is what Jesus called us to do because that's where Jesus went. Every one of us. In our meeting a couple of weeks ago, some of them talked about the 80-20 percentage in the church. That 20% of the people give 80% of the money, do 80% of the work, carry 80% of the load. If that were the case, New Hope, and that 20% did 80% and 80% did 20%, which part would you be in? And then, which part would Jesus be proud of? He writes about the present. We don't want to talk about Churches that are careless. We're going to talk about churches that are compromised. We're going to talk about churches that are corrupt. We're going to talk about churches that are confronted. We're going to talk about churches that are complacent. But then we're going to talk about a church that's consistent. You see, God is speaking into us. And what we do, let me be clear, what we do in 22 and 23 will determine what 2028 is like. 2029 is like how we pour ourselves into these guys right here. You realize, I know how much you love our our young people. You realize, six or seven years, there's going to be a whole lot lot of mamas crying because their babies are not going to be around anymore because they stepped into adulthood. And what are they going to carry from the Lord into their adulthood? they're going to carry what we ever pour into them. He speaks of the past. He writes about the present. And then I want to just, I'm going to end with this. In this point with this, he's going to write about the prophetic. And I want to just tell you that the reason this is so important to Jesus is because he still walks among his churches. Remember that picture there in 20? And back up. And he saw him and he was walking among the churches. Back in verse 13. He's still among us. That prophetic is what will be, if you look in verse 19, what will be, what takes place after this. After this. Like a master storyteller, Jesus is telling John the story. Like a master writer, John is is recording everything that Jesus says. And you go, and you go, okay, he says, and what will take place after this? After what? Well, if you want to know that, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, after this. That's after the present day. I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. First voice I heard was that, was speaking to me, was like a trumpet. 
said, come up here. Don't miss this. This prophetic word that Jesus has given, God's prophecy can be defined this way. Are you listening? As history written in advance. And Jesus is more accurate than our history books. He's more accurate than first person. I could say a lot of stuff here, but here's what I want to tell you. This just shows that Jesus, that our Lord, is in control. The very fact that he's in control should lift your spirits, should encourage you, should help you long for a future, should help you love and trust him more. So there you see the outline. Before I pass this point to end the message, we see the outline, past, present, prophetic. If you can see that, if God were to outline your life, to write the outline, what would it look like? The past, the present, the future. Priorities, loves. How would it look? It brings us to the final thing that I want to offer you today, and that is the mystery of the revelation. The mystery of the revelation. I've already said this in previous messages that there's a lot of symbolism in revelation. There's symbols and there's numbers because they, they tend to stay consistent. So I'm going to take verse 20, and I just want to show you how this, un, how this opens up for me. First, the first thing that I want you to see is seven, the sevens. We talked about this in the numbers, but if you look in, in, chapter, in verse 20, six times by my count, the number seven appears. Six times. We remember that the number seven is a number of perfection and completion. It's the number of God. It's the number of churches. Could it be could it be that there are just basically seven types of churches? Could it be that there's only seven types of pastors? Seven draws our attention to God. The mystery of the revelation is that every time you see seven, think that God's in charge and in control because he's complete, because he's perfect, because he's unchangeable. Second thing that comes out of my story, comes out of my study here, are the stars. You see it listed there. Some, in some translations, we'll call it angels. You see, the stars are generally thought to be the pastors of the church. That's a. I want to say this: when you call a pastor, when you call a pastor, it is a holy. It is a sacred, it is a divine, it is a serious thing. I know churches that consider their pastor as a hireling. As a hireling. You know what happens? That when a, in times of difficulty, a hireling will run off. The shepherd won't. You see... The angel, the star, the pastor is the conduit of God's voice for God's people. That's why we see him holding the seven stars in his hand. It's for protection, affection, 
and direction. And that's why the Old Testament says, touch not my anointed. But then I want to end with this. I'm going to play on words a little bit. I'm going to call it the stands. The Bible calls it lampstands. I just, I'll be honest with you, I'll shorten it to stands because lampstands didn't fit my alliteration. But here's what I'm going to tell you, is that the stand is where you put the light on. Hello? You want to put it, you put a stand there, you put a light on it. And these stands remind us of our responsibility. If I've lost your attention, could I get it? Here's our responsibility, New Hope. To be a light in this community that is so darkened by sin. That's it. Old Testament says the people who walked in darkness had seen a great light. They were talking about Jesus and who saw the, who were the people walking in darkness? Everyone around. I'll just tell you this. Oh, Brother Jerry, that's great. I think our church ought to be a great light. Now, that's a true statement, but it's very impersonal, so let me make it as personal as I can in just the moments that I have. The lampstand. The church. is not this building, and it's not this campus, and it's not particularly the things we do together on this campus. The light is you. The light is you. Jesus said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But when I leave, you're the one who's going to light the world. One thing, about, one thing about lights, if the lights don't function, people walk in darkness. Jesus calls you and he calls me. To those people we encounter every day that, that are lost and separated from God and walking in darkness, he calls us to be the light. You know, we're talking this morning about the choir loft, Mike. About the choir loft. Now, most of you don't know this, but when the choir sits up here, they had real trouble seeing not enough light. So, Mike, I'd like to take credit for it. He may give me some credit for it, but Mike took it on himself. We ordered some different type of bulbs that brought out a little light, and so now we're seeing if the little light, extra light's going to help us see. Because when you're lost in darkness, when you can't read, when you can't, you need light. It was 40 years ago in Milton, Florida. I was a minister of music. Oh, it's longer than that. 45. Preacher had a son who went out, he and his friend John and, and Gary went out hunting down in the swamp. Been there many times. But we all knew that when the sun started going down, that swamp began to look like everything and everybody. You, just, you can get lost. I was at the office, and his dad came by and said, look, we're forming a search party. 
Gary and John are not back, and it's getting dark. So we all grabbed our shotguns and our lights, and we literally surrounded the swamp. The swamp. We fired our guns and we hollered. Turned our lights on. I was on this side of the swamp, and I heard hollering across the swamp. And what had happened is they had lost their way and their battery had gone dead in their light. And so the men came with the lights and they came to safety. I don't know if you can see that picture, but that's what's going on in America today. People have no light. And you are the light. We are the lights. We are the lampstands. Bring them to Jesus. The heart of the revelation is still about Jesus saving lost people through people like you and me. May God make it so. Bow with me.